This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. In this show, we're going to hear an extended interview with Cassie Lynch, who we heard a little on the show last week. Now, Cass is a descendant of the Noongar people of Southwest Australia, and she's been studying their storytelling tradition for her PhD. Now, Aboriginal people have lived in what is now Australia for many tens of thousands of years, and stories and memories are passed down each generation. What that means is that it's possible to hear accounts of what happened thousands of years ago at the end of the last ice age, and sea levels rose, and 23% of the land area of Australia was lost. And what's special about this interview is that Aboriginal stories are only shared among Aboriginal people, so it's very hard for outsiders to learn from them. But the writer and theatre maker David Finnegan reached out to Cassie for us, and she agreed to talk about what she's learned talking to elders of the Noongar people. So here's Cassie introducing herself, and then you'll hear David. I'm a Wurlaman Noongar woman, uh, the Indigenous people of the southwest of the Australian continent. And I did my PhD on our stories, on Noongar stories, Indigenous stories that reference climate change. And so how did you come to be interested in the end of the Ice Age? I wanted to learn more about climate. And when I was listening to some of my elders share cultural stories, Our stories about our own, where our people come from, where all the people and animals come from in Noongar country, it was a different climate to now. It was our period of creation is a very cold time. It was also a time of lower sea levels. And when I got in to do my PhD, uh, some really important research came out that proposed that the cultural stories that Indigenous people are telling around the coast of Australia about seas that rise and don't recede could in fact be eyewitness accounts of the rise in sea level that occurred after the last ice age, uh, climate stories essentially that have been passed down for thousands of years. Can you tell us about that period of rising seas at the end of the ice age? What happened? Well, currently, Earth is in a glacial-interglacial cycle. So we experience an ice age about every 150,000 years. And, you know, the thing about the development of, uh, of us, of Homo sapiens sapien, is that the last 6,000 years have been a huge time of technological and agricultural development. And that's because the ice age was 20,000 years ago. And when an ice age breaks, it breaks really suddenly. 
and it got very warm very quickly. The seas rose by 120 meters and suddenly humans are in a really warm, um, pleasant period of weather and this has pushed the huge development that we've seen in the last 6,000 years. So seas rising 120 metres, that's, that's a lot of land lost. What would that have looked like somewhere like Australia? So Australia lost 23% of its land mass in a 10,000-year period. So the glacial-interglacial cycle goes for about 150,000 years so 20,000 years ago was the coldest point in this cycle. And when it's really cold, ice caps and glaciers form on the land masses, and this sucks all of the water up out of the sea and onto land. And so the seas were 120 metres lower for 50 or 60,000 years. Huge. So for a long time, the sea levels were 120 metres lower, but when the Ice Age breaks, the seas rose by 120 metres and Australia lost 23% of its land mass. And most of that would have been inhabited. And so that is a huge amount of people on the Australian continent that then have to negotiate with their inland neighbours to move inland over a, you know, really a 6,000 year period. And so there are Indigenous stories that take us back to this moment. Um, can you give us any examples of these stories? Yeah, so the kind of stories that I researched for my PhD were based around usually the creator serpent, the serpent that created Noongar country, who you know generally might be known around Australia as the rainbow serpent. And so this is a figure that sets all the laws, LAW, of Noongar country and protocols that Noongar people must follow. And if people break the law, then the serpent sends floods to punish the people. And so these stories, that's very generally what those stories are. The thing about being an Indigenous woman and being a researcher is that in Indigenous culture, only certain people can tell certain stories. And so I have access to lots of climate stories that have been recorded by Western anthropologists, but I do not like to repeat the particulars of that story in public because the stories have survived 7,000 years because they've been told by the right person in the right way. So they haven't been remixed, they haven't been reimagined by lots of different people telling the story like you might see with maybe Greek myths or Roman myths or Norse myths. These stories are only told by the community members of that place. And so I find myself at a bit of a kind of cultural crossroads where I want to promote these stories, but the reason they've survived so long is they've been told a certain way. So I like to support elders to tell those stories. Mm, that's such an interesting position to be in. But you sort of talked about how really recently there's been this sort of research that has verified some of these stories. Can you talk a bit, how, how is that possible? How have we managed to find out or verify these stories? Yeah, it was a groundbreaking paper that came out in 2015 in Australian Geographer by Nunn and Reed, and they are uh, researchers who study previous climates and who um, have the capacity to judge the level of the sea in successive thousand-year periods. It's very difficult to do. They measure the sea floor with against their modelling of um, the sea level rise after the last ice age. And so they put this information together 
And then they made the connection that Indigenous people around Australia are essentially telling the same story. And so this is a story of a sea that rises but crucially doesn't recede because there are lots of stories around the Western world of seas that rise and fall, you know, Noah's flood, etc. However, these ones were very consistent of a sea that rises and doesn't recede and what that community did and what wisdom they passed down about how to survive it. One of the most extraordinary things to come out of this research was that there are um, Indigenous communities on the north of Australia who can describe islands that are now submerged and have been submerged for about 7,000 years. So these are the sorts of things they came across that made them think, no, this is not a coincidence. Humans have been telling stories about climate all around the world, but there are communities of Indigenous people in Australia who have passed down the eyewitness accounts of a major climatic change like huge sea level rise. It's just so extraordinary to me that you could point to an island that the stories have survived and you could kind of point to to an island that hasn't been an island for 7,000 years and, and describe it and know its name. I just, how is it, I mean, you sort of touched on this before, but how is it possible that a story in an oral tradition can be passed down in that way for, for so many generations? Yeah, so it's, it's speculative at the moment, you know, because the research is so recent and it's essentially t- telling Aboriginal people something they already knew. Yes, our stories are not necessarily moralistic stories, like how do you act in relation to other people, although they do have elements of that. But Indigenous storytelling is passing down the wisdom from our ancestors, teaching us how to live a good life on country. And one of the hallmarks of Indigenous storytelling is we have survived climate change in the past. This is how you do it if it comes again. And so um, there is nothing general about Indigenous knowledge. You know, it's not like global knowledge. It's not it's not generalised knowledge. It's really specific knowledges to certain places. So Indigenous people don't tell the stories of people 40 kilometres away. They don't tell the stories of people overseas. They tell story, what we would know as maybe myths and legends, they are uh, stories encoded with data about that specific place. And so this is why it's important that only those people tell the story of that place because they are always telling the story about those landforms, those plants, those animals as they all relate together. And so someone who is describing an island that is now submerged is because it is crucial to our cultural relationship with our land that we know our land and so that includes places that have been affected by climate let's say that have been submerged or perhaps landforms like hills that have been split by a spring that are no longer there anymore are still described because they could return get up to 30 percent off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So these stories... You said that they don't, they, they kind of partly have a moral dimension and partly they're, they're sort of factual. But I guess 
for me, this is so kind of resonant that these stories are kind of, they're still here now as we enter this new period of climate instability. Why do you think these stories matter for us here and now in this moment? I think when people were first interested in Indigenous stories, it was because they were so different to Western stories. So there's an element of amusement, you know, people, humans love stories and we love absorbing other stories and we are consume the stories of other cultures because we are language users and stories are encoded with signs and symbols and people who perhaps feel out of place in their own culture might read stories of other cultures and be like, oh yes, that's me, so they don't feel so alone. So there is an interest in Indigenous stories. But in the current context of the climate changing faster than it ever has in human history, we are now looking We are on alert for information that can help us. This is what humans are like. We're pattern watchers, you know, and we are looking for ways to create resilience in the face of climate change. And so I'm not surprised that of all the things that Aboriginal stories offer, because they're encoded with where to find food, where to find water, how to interact with your relations, what the plants and animals are doing, what the weather is doing. Of all the things that Aboriginal stories offer, I'm not surprised that people are interested in the climate survival knowledge. And I think with the climate changing, people are surprised by it. And they're like, oh, why didn't we notice this happening? How have we allowed this to happen? And I think the Western world has become disconnected from the day-to-day relationship with the land they're on. You know, they might get up in their house, get in their car, go to work come home in their car, sit in their house. They actually haven't interacted with nature that day. So it doesn't surprise me that people are interested in how Indigenous um, people see the world because that connection has not been broken. Colonisation is so recent in Australia that our elders know a lot about living a traditional life on country. So I think those two things, that the West has become disconnected from land and now must reconnect in order to survive climate change as a continuous culture, And Indigenous people have carried that memory. And there's nothing particularly special about Indigenous people. It's This is how humans have got by in our part of the world. And now the rest of the people around the world who have perhaps lost that connection to place need to relearn that. You know, we're kind of re-evolving the wheel here. Mm. And Indigenous people just haven't lost that connection. And that's hugely valuable because I think a lot of other ideologies have come in to occupy people's minds. In some ways, it's really comforting to think we've been here before and, you know, we've survived this and we're all descended from people thousands of years ago who survived a, a kind of climatic transition that was maybe as traumatic, maybe not as traumatic, but, but certainly on the scale that we're facing now. So I feel like, I mean, for me, certainly it's really exciting and really heartening. I think like there is a real opportunity for us to be guided by First Nations knowledge in this moment because, as you say, it has kept information that the rest of the rest of us have lost but for people who don't have maybe an existing connection to first nations culture and who maybe want to connect or access this knowledge where would you suggest they begin that's exactly what it is it's cultural it's not genetic it's not biological it's cultural relationships to where you are and the people around you so i think everyone is uh, has the capacity to connect to country so in australia the word country Uh, for Indigenous people is a translation from our Indigenous languages into English and country, land, buja in Noongar is what that is. It is a multifaceted relationship to place. So one of the 
hallmarks of Indigenous cultures, actually many cultures around the world, is an awareness of ancestors. So I think colonization severs people from their ancestors. Even the Europeans who colonized the world, they move away from their land, they lose that relationship to their land, and suddenly it doesn't mean anything to them. And that has been a problem in the 20th century and 21st century of uh, the lost connection to land. And now the land is changing. We don't know what to do. We have no uh, framework of how to grieve for that. So one of the things I would recommend is being aware of your ancestry if you can. One of the hallmarks of Indigenous cultures and many cultures around the world is a awareness of ancestors and a connection to ancestors. And this connects you to land and caring for the land because in traditional cultures, your ancestors are buried in the land. So you are compelled by your culture to care for burial places and perhaps even birthplaces of your ancestors. And so having an awareness of that and feeling like you're compelled to care for ancestors really forces people to consider land, that land as inheritance, land as responsibility, and perhaps even for your own descendants that are to come. So instead of seeing yourself as a static creature in shallow time, it lengthens out your experience and genealogy of where you are. So you start thinking thousands of years in the past and thousands of years in the future. This long experience of time and um, kinship is what Indigenous cultures have retained even in the face of colonisation. And that long sense of time, that bigness, that length on, on land and country is the kind of mindset that one might need to really act on climate change and to really, with climate change, there is this um, temporal lensing going on that you it feels both too far away, you don't need to act, but so soon that you should panic. And that kind of makes people inactive. And I wonder if lengthening out your sense of time, which is this rope of ancestors behind you and your descendants in front of you, might settle people, and that's always in a place, might settle people in place to feel strong enough to act on climate change. So that kind of connecting with your ancestry and, and kind of thinking back through that rope of ancestors and the kind of being placed in, in the country you are, on the country you are, that's something that's accessible to all of us, I guess. Yeah. Often people ask me, what can I do to connect to country? We're not Indigenous people. We don't have any connection to the land. And I often think, oh, that's a Western framing of that you lack something. When I ask uh, Indigenous elders, particularly my elders, Noongar elders, they tell me, Cass, notice country, notice the land, notice the seasons, notice what the animals are doing. Where does the water come from? Where is it going? What times of the year does it rain? All of these things, if you go out and notice those things and fill your mind, with those things, you're actually living much more of an Indigenous life than you might have been previously. So it takes up space in your mind and then pushes out other things that aren't really connected to that, let's care for country and fight climate change. So these things, you've got, you've got the capacity to do them. It's just very, it's hard, I think, for people to get out of the fast pace of their lives, to act and feel strong enough to act when slowing down and noticing the seasons is exactly what humans have done for thousands of years and it's what got us here. 
That was the Noongar scholar Cassie Lynch talking to David Finnegan about how storytelling in Aboriginal culture has preserved reports of sea level rise from many thousands of years ago. And many thanks to Cassie and David for that interview. Cass mentioned the study by Patrick Nunn and Nicholas Reed, and that really alerted many people outside of Aboriginal communities to their storytelling tradition and memories of climate change. And I'll put a link in the show notes for that paper if you're interested. Thanks for listening. I'm Rowan Hooper, and we're back with a regular show soon. We'll see you then. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.